I'm going to talk to you this morning about our, we're going to preach into the series that we're in at the moment as a church. So if you've been around, you know, we are in a series in, it's called the Upside Down, Living as a Beatitude People, which is a series in the Gospel of Matthew that's looking at these teachings of Jesus called the Beatitudes. There's Beatitudes in the Gospel of Luke as well, but we're looking in this series particularly at those eight Beatitudes in the Gospel of Matthew, the blessings as they're, as they're known. And these uh, teachings of Jesus really are little windows. They're a picture, I suppose, a vision of the way that God sees the world. Jesus is, 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 is sharing, is letting us in on that. He's, he's teaching his disciples that and the crowd that, and then we get to sit in on that too and see this picture of the way that God sees the world, the way that God orders the world, the way that God values things in the world. And so for people following Jesus, the Beatitudes are this description, I suppose, of a life that's, well, as Stanley Harwa says, a, a life that's of a people gathered by Jesus and around Jesus. That's what uh, the Beatitudes are, are describing, this life of the Jesus way. So I'll quickly recap, week one we had a, we looked at, uh, if you remember, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You remember that? The translation, the Brian Zahn translation, we've been using his translations of this to help us um, flesh it out a little bit. Blessed are those who are poor at being spiritual, um, for the kingdom of God is well suited for ordinary people. Week two, we looked at, uh, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted um, or as Brian Zan says blessed are the depressed who mourn and grieve for they will create space to encounter comfort from another remember that and last week Ryan he preached on the third beatitude blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth the Brian Zan translation blessed are the gentle and trusting those who do not grasp or clutch for God personally will guarantee their share when heaven comes to earth So we're looking at the fourth one this week. The fourth one, Matthew 5, verse 6. And I'll read it to you now. I want you to stand to help me with this. So stand for one moment. I need you to be involved. I want you to take your hands. I want you to put your hands on your your belly, on your stomach like that. And say after me, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Okay, great. You can sit down. Awesome. So we're, we're holding our stomachs, yeah? That's where the fire comes out, yeah? And the belly and other things also. <laughs> um, interesting, last week Ryan talked about anger for a little bit. I think we all know what anger looks like when we're hungry. You know that hangry monster, the little bit of moodiness kicks in, we get a little bit hungry. It's a funny thing, hunger, right? Sneaks up on us in a sense. Um, But it's real, right? It's not just the hunger that we have as human beings for food either. We hunger for all sorts of stuff. It's a really great scriptural or spiritual analogy that Jesus is using here because we can't deny as humans we hunger, we have hunger, we have desires, we look to be satisfied. A few few years ago, I read this book by James K.A. Smith. He's a Christian professor and a philosopher. And he makes this argument that we are by nature human. Human beings are by nature liturgical people. What does that mean? It means that we're always becoming. We're always becoming or we're always being formed or shaped. We're not static. We're never in stasis. Whether we realize it or not, whether we're conscious or not, we're always being shaped into something or someone. 
Um, So the question is not, are we being formed or changed, but what are the forces that are forming and changing us? That's the question that we need to ask. And so in his book, he talks about this sense of forming and shaping and the relationship that desire, hunger, longings have. And he illustrates this by talking about something that he calls the liturgy of the mall or the shopping center. It's an American author. Um, and he says that every, every culture, you'll have heard this if you've been around our community and you've been in this community a long time, every culture has a script or a narrative in which the culture is shaped and therefore the people in that culture are then shaped by that script or that narrative. And so he says that in our culture here in the ever secularized Western world, the dominant cultural script or narrative is this that I am what I have. I am what I have or what I accomplish. And he talks about this, the society is set up, particularly as you can see behind me, our shopping centers and our high streets are like these great cathedrals of retail where we pil- and they actually look a little bit like cathedrals, particularly this one in our city, which is Victoria Square. They're literally like at the center of our very city. And uh, so much happens there. Um, and they're actually like, they look like, in a sense, an important architectural building. But they're uh, like a cathedral that we pilgrimage into. That today in our Western society, advertising is like uh, our prayers on billboards, our desires, the things we long for are being like echoed out on a, on a billboard. That, that marketing chiefs are like these bishops you know, and the seals people are like these priests and we go into the checkout, which is like the altar and we lay down our sacrifices on the altar, which is our money to get from the retail gods what we want to satisfy our souls because we've been longing for that Apple product or whatever it might be so long, it's going to make us happy. Isn't that right? I think we all can relate to this somewhat and maybe pushing it too far, but it's a really powerful cultural exegesis that James, James K. Smith makes. What he's... He's saying is that we're marketed to, you know, every day and we begin to dream and plan and save up. We begin to want and this consumption of goods that dominate our society and our culture is like a kind of liturgy. It's a kind of, it's shaping us. It's, it's shaping us in some way. And we go through that liturgy to get what we want, which the, the thing that we want, which aims to satisfy a desire in us or a hunger in us or a longing in us to quench or satisfy those hunger pains that we have, to quench our thirst. We see that often in our kids, don't we? They, oh, we want something, they want something, they want something. They're not satisfied until they get what they, they want. But these, it's the human experience. And these deep longings that aren't for food operate, in a sense, in the same way as like a hunger does for food. You know, that we, you know, you get the hangry monster comes up and he's like, pay attention hello I need this thing I want this thing now and then we go to the fridge and we eat and we satisfy that hunger and then repeat and it happens over and over again and we're never ultimately ever satisfied and I call this well the hunger games Um, but there's a lot of scientific research that's been done into the power of desire and hunger and your appetite and so James K. Smith is making this big point he says that more than willpower or discipline, more than positive thinking, it is your desires, your hungers, your longings that shape you most. Or John Orberg says this, tell me what you love and I will tell you who you are. 
It's true, if it's true, that we're never static, but we're always being shaped into something. If it's true that we're always becoming something, and if it's true that, in fact, our desires, our hungers, our longings are the most powerful thing that are shaping us, then I guess I dare say we pay attention to what those desires and those hungers are. Because whether we like it or not, whether we're aware of it consciously or not, they have a power over us. The scriptures say so much about hunger and thirst as metaphors to explain desire. Isaiah 55, I'll I'll throw you a few scriptures. Come all who are thirsty, come to the waters and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Why spend money on what is not bread and labor on what does not satisfy? Listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Or we might know this one in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. My God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God, when can I go and meet with God? Or Psalm 63, oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. Hunger and thirst as a spiritual metaphor. And I suppose in this beatitude in Matthew that we've just read, blessed are those who are hunger, hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That's the phenomena or the, the natural phenomena, I suppose, that Jesus is addressing because he's, he's saying it, blessed are those who hunger and thirst. And at the end of the passage it says, for they will be filled and satisfied. That's the theme of this. It's, it's a, he's talking about hunger and desire. He's clearly addressing this powerful thing in, our, in the human experience. Um, but it's clear that he's not eliminating it. He's not saying do not hunger or do not thirst. He is in fact saying hunger and thirst. Many people have a, a perhaps come to a wrong understanding that that the Christian life or that the Jesus way is somehow a kind of denial of desire. It's a suppression of desire. And what Jesus is saying is that hunger and thirst are good. They're part of the human experience, but that we need to raise our hunger to a higher plane. It needs to be redeemed, reoriented, redirected, and that for the Jesus people, For the world, in fact, this is actually good news. This is the good news of the kingdom. Basically, Jesus wants you to work up an appetite for something. He wants you to work up an appetite for something. We always we don't have good appetites all the time, do we? Or good hungers or longings. Jesus, he's here with this beatitude. He's disrupting that. He's saying, "Nice one, nice try, but we got to go up another level." Hunger games are good, but we've got a hunger for something more. And I guess that's the point of the Beatitudes, isn't it? The point that we've been making over these last few weeks is that the Beatitudes are supposed to disrupt us and disorientate us and point us toward the kingdom of God. They're supposed to direct us away from death and toward life. They're supposed to direct us away from the world's ordering of society, the world's ranking, the way the world would see things, and toward the way God sees things, the people that God says are blessed, the the economy of the kingdom is a completely upside down kingdom. And Jesus here again is disrupting these hunger games that we play, disrupting the dominant scripts, the liturgy of the shopping center or the mall. And he's saying, nice one, but we've got to take the hunger to a different level. We've got to work up an appetite for a way of life that might yield better results that might actually cause us to be filled or satisfied. 
So, so now that we've covered that, I guess the question is, what are you hungry for today? What are you hungry for? What are you longing for today? What's in your heart? What's in your belly? What do you want? Let's keep moving. Because if Jesus wants us to hunger and he wants us to thirst, what is it specifically that he wants us to hunger and thirst for? He tells us. He tells us that we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. I don't know what comes up in your mind when you hear the word righteousness. Does anyone want to offer an answer? Because when I hear the word righteousness, I think that's a big word. But I think, what I hear, what is what I hear, personal righteousness. I hear getting right with God. That's what I hear. Yeah? You know what you're tracking? Yep. I hear getting right with God, personal righteousness. But there is a problem with this because most languages, including the Greek in the New Testament, don't have a different word for righteousness and justice. It's the same word rightness with the world blessed so Jesus is basically saying blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice for justice the Greek word dikaiosin I've butchered that I know I don't care I'm going to keep going (laughs) is often translated just as righteousness but it means righteousness or justice and the problem we have when we just read it flat like Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We just reduce the breadth and the depth of this teaching and what Jesus is getting at down to this kind of personal piety, this kind of individual rightness, which is important, of course, but the kind of faith, you know, which is all about you and God and God and you and all about Jesus as your Lord and personal Savior, and it sort of stops there. That's really it. Whereas justice is this big idea about the world being put to rights, the whole of society, the whole of creation, the whole of the world. Of course, God's interested in our personal heart condition. Of course it is. But to miss it, we'll miss it, sorry, if we think that hungering and thirsting here is just being directed towards personal spirituality alone and doesn't include some of the social and corporate arrangements too. This is a problem because we know as we've been working through the Beatitudes that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, which is this kingdom of God. This is God's agenda for reordering the whole of the world, all of society, as I've said, all of creation, according to his justice. So again, Jesus is not talking about private faith, but social justice. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness means just that. Of course, the two go together. That a person who is, in a sense, right with God or who is close with God or who is in communion with God, of course, should be someone who's intensely engaged and interested in the world being put to rights. Let me just read you what Brian Zahn says about this beatitude. This is his interpretation. We read the other ones earlier. Hopefully it comes up on the screen. He says, blessed, this is how he interprets it. Blessed are those who ache for the world to be made right. For them, the government of God is a dream come true. 
So hunger and thirst, yes. Long for, yes. Ache for, ache for what? Ache, ache for the world to be made right as God sees it. Blows the whole meaning of the beatitude right open, doesn't it? It's a whole different thing, which then again begs the question, what are you hungering for today? What are you longing for today? What do you thirst for? What do you ache for? Do we ache, Redeemer, for the world to be made right? Or are we blind, perhaps by those other cultural liturgies and scripts of what's important, what the world says is important, are we ignorant to the realities of injustice and hardship and inequality in our world? Because if we are to be a people who know God and know his heartbeat, surely when we engage with the world, we see that his heartbeat is not reflected in every area of our society or are our desires just so caught up with the I am what I have, what I can consume, what I can, ach- what I can achieve? Do we hunger and thirst for justice? Do we do that even as a community? Do we have a heartbeat for justice as God does? Maybe we could even this morning work up an appetite. How about that this morning? Sometimes we're so dominated by these cultural scripts that we're not actually being discipled by Jesus, but we're being discipled by our age and we're oblivious. So let's let's work up a little bit of an appetite. How about this? 16% of the people that live on this planet, live on one dollar a day or less. 40% of the world live on less than two dollars a day. 80% of people in the, on this planet, on this ball, live on less than ten dollars a day. More than one billion people today, according to the UN, are hungry. Today, I mean hungry for food, malnourished, needing of food. 17,000 children die every day from hunger. Just hunger in our world in 2019, according to the UN. Six million a year, something like one every five seconds. Does that work up an appetite? And yet, hear this, the nations of the world spend, listen to this, three billion dollars a day on defense so for example for every child that dies every day the world spends 176,000 dollars defending their borders on security for every child every day that's how much money we spend globally on military spending it's not right is it Something's not right. We're witnessing the highest record of people displaced, the highest levels. 68.5 million people, according to the UN again, are displaced. 25 million are refugees, as in they're in another country. And over half of them are under the age of 18. There's also 10 million stateless people in the world, which means that they're denied a nationality, which means they've no access to basic rights, such as education or healthcare or employment. In the world, one, where nearly one person is forcibly displaced every two seconds as a result of conflict or persecution, one person displaced every two seconds because of conflict or persecution. It starts to work up a little bit of an appetite in us, I think. In 2016, Oxfam said that the, the richest 1% have more wealth 
the richest 1% have more wealth than the rest of the world combined. That the richest eight people, eight people who would fit inside a limo, have more wealth than the poorest 3.6 billion people. That the poorest 50% of the world has got, there's eight people in the world have the same wealth as the poorest 3.6 billion people, which is just crazy. In Northern Ireland, what about Northern Ireland? What about justice in Northern Ireland? 25% of people, according to the End Child Poverty Coalition, say 25% of children are living in poverty, apparently, in Northern Ireland, according to that coalition, which is apparently a coalition made up of over 100 organizations. Almost half of young people in Northern Ireland have recently said in a YouGov poll that they have experienced a mental health issue. Another reason why we should be talking about this, particularly in church. So I encourage you to go with that event next Sunday night. Something not quite right. More people have died in Northern Ireland since the Good Friday Agreement by suicide than died in the Troubles. Northern Ireland has the highest suicide rate in the UK. Something's not right. 11% of young people in Northern Ireland are not in any kind of employment, education or training. 11% are in no way in any kind of track for their life at all. And that doesn't even get to the discrimination and the hate crimes and abuse and the violence, the paramilitary activity and so on. There is, of course, an awful lot wrong with our world. But for people of the way of Jesus, we should work up an appetite for justice. As Brian Zahn says, that the very least that the people of Jesus can do is ache the very least we could do because we're sort of uncomfortable reading this it's easier to ignore it the very least that we can do is ache over this and hopefully we can do a lot more than that hopefully we can actually build a better world but the very least we can do is ache over this yearn for more for a better way and it must begin with us saying no this is unacceptable and Jesus says Blessed are those who refuse to ignore all of that. Who refuse to look at the world through rose-tinted glasses of delusion. People formed in the way of Jesus do not accept this. They do not accept the status quo. They ache for something better. And that something better is the kingdom of God. And that is why we as the people of Jesus pray that kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There has to be a better way. And Jesus shows us that there is a better way in these beatitudes. And in this beatitude, he reminds us that those who hunger and thirst for this justice in the world will be satisfied, will be filled that the kingdom of God will break in and justice and healing and hope will arrive. And when it does, it's the Jesus people, the redeemed, that will be satisfied that justice has indeed come. In Amos, God tells his people that worship and rightness before him looks not like piety. It looks like justice. This is what God says in Amos 5. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll 
like the waters and righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream. Justice and righteousness, again, there. And then we have in Micah, the prophet Micah is asking, what does righteous living look like, Lord? What is righteous? What, and he says this, what will I come before the Lord and buy before God on high? Shall I come with, with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10, 000, uh, with 10,000 of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And we see here that there's this both and going on. It's not like an either or. It's both this love kindness, walk humbly, this personal integrity, this communion with God, this personal communion with God, this personal holiness or righteousness and social justice, corporate concern, concrete action. We have this propensity to separate these things out. We have this propensity to to just say that there's this group over here that does this and this. I mean, the activists in this room will be like all ecstatic, I am sure, when we've been reading out about all the stuff that needs to be done in the world. We have to work up this appetite for justice. And then we have people in the the room here that are more like the the prayers, the spiritual prayers, like, that's all very well and we need to do that, but we need to make sure that our relationship with God is right because it's the most important thing. And it's the personal versus the corporate. It's the private versus the public. It's the individual responsibility versus the social responsibility responsibility and I'm not talking about the difference between the conservative party and labor I'm talking about the kingdom of God and yet there's this verse in Micah that's talking about both it's both one and the same thing that we should not separate these things out that we should do justice and we should love kindness and we should walk humbly that we should let justice roll and righteousness flow that it's not just about getting our spiritual walk with God right in a sense, and neglecting the, the call to make the world a better place. And it's equally not just about getting the world better, you know, and the social action and not actually having a relationship with the creator and the one who is at work in the world. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It's the one commandment, the greatest commandment. It's not either or, it's a both and. And we know this, Redeemer. We know this because we've been talking about it for a long time. You've heard language like intimacy and action. Or worship and justice. The connection between these things. And here's the preaching moment, I suppose. Here's the takeaway today. Here's the key to what I'm trying to say today. As we reflect upon blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. As we reflect on that beatitude. Here is the key that I believe that renewal and justice for God to show up in the world, that this happens, this does happen when it starts with us and a renewal in us personally. It's both of these things, they shouldn't be separated, but I do believe that it starts with us. Not us doing things, but it starts with a renewal of our inner being, our soul. It starts with us. Second Chronicles seven fourteen says this, if my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves 
and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven. I will forgive their sin. I will heal their land. It's interesting that later on in Jesus' ministry, he goes on to talk about himself as bread. And he talks about himself as giving living water. He talks about hunger and thirst. And he invites people to come to him to be satisfied first in him. John 6, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. Or everyone who drinks of this water will thirst, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. The water that I will give him will be a well of water springing up. Or the interesting one in John 7, this is the King James Version because the language is really interesting. Jesus stood up in the last day of the feast and cried, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. Rivers of living water like an Amos. Rivers of justice like a mighty river. When we work up, Redeemer, an appetite, a hunger for God. When we have our souls satisfied in him and our spiritual hunger satisfied in him, Jesus says that rivers of living water will flow from our belly and they're not flowing inward to fill us up like a lake, but they're flowing outward. They're flowing into us, through us and out of us for the sake of the world. Which begs the question, if we want to see the kingdom of God in our world, then perhaps we need to start there. We need to start there. Pursuing God's presence in our lives. Hungering after him to have our souls satisfied. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. It's a both and we need the liturgies of the mall and all other script, the narrative scripts disrupted. If we want to see the reign and peace and healing of Jesus in our world, perhaps we need to start on our knees, inviting the reign and peace of Jesus into our hearts and lives. All revivals have started this way. All revivals have started this way. And I suppose it's, it's that that I wanted to speak about some vision today and some direction for us as a church because that sort of sets up what we as senior leaders feel as a church community where we sense we're being led this year in 2019 to go. We sense, I mean, I've talked about this before that our community here uh, is a beautiful community, a small community. It's 10 years old, which is a brilliant thing. We've been asking, well, what does the next 10 look like as senior leaders? And we've come to this conclusion We've come to the conclusion that we're just bored at church. We just don't want to play games anymore. We don't want to go through the motions. And we actually really want to know what God might have for us. And we really want to know what this community might look like if we yielded to, to, to the Spirit. We want to really know what shape this thing might take if God would have his way. So we're holding it like this. And we don't really know what's next. But I think that posture is important. And we were asking this last year. 
this question as senior leaders. And we found ourselves as senior leaders at a, at a conference. There was eight of us, seven or eight of us. I can't remember how many on our team. Um, and we were all at the, the Tabar conference um, in Emmanuel Church in Lurgan. And there was uh, about, maybe about seven or 800 people in the room. And we'd been uh, talking about all sorts of things. But we, we found that there was a team that, hit, that came up on the stage that day who have got a particular gifting, prophetic gifting. They sense and hear from God and they, they spoke a word over us, Redeemer Central. And this is what they said. They said that they saw a picture of a prostitute weeping on our doorstep and that that was the caliber of people that God was going to bring to the church. They said that they, our church would be marked with a radical love and embrace for the broken and an encounter of the Holy Spirit, that our posture would be of love and embrace for the Holy Spirit, openness to the Holy Spirit. The third thing they said, that Redeemer would be a safe place for anyone and everyone, particularly those walking around our building and our streets in this location that God was going to call them to here. And the fourth thing they said, that we were to set up a prayer, they saw us setting up a prayer room in this building that was not just for the city, Sorry, not just for the church, but for the city. It was a place where people could come. Said that there is somewhere for people to come and encounter the living God, the broken. And we were told, as wisely you would do in such a situation, to weigh that. You know, just feel that out. But we were all just in tears. We didn't have to weigh it. Because it broke us right there, right then. We were in tears. It spoke to us. We were blown away. Because we've been talking about some of this for so long. Privately and publicly, we've been, we've been working up an appetite a little bit. And I'm sure you have too, for the broken and for the prayer. We'd even talked about prayer rooms. We talked about this place becoming like an urban monastery of some kind in our city. Monasteries tend to be places where prayer is offered up and God's presence is sought after and the poor come and find themselves God and they find themselves a meal and they find themselves some help. It's just this word spoken over us last year just felt so consistent with who we were, so consistent. It lined up and we just were, but it felt so fresh and new. And so I wanted to share that with you today because it's going to inform where we feel we're going this year. There was four parts to that word. There was people, the people that we're always going to bring to us. There was the posture that we were going to have. We're going to be a community of, of embrace and love. There was something spoken about a place, which we have a place in our city, right in the center. The people in the streets around this very place, something about the geography here. And the fourth thing was something about setting up, a, it was about prayer at the center of it all. Setting up a prayer room. And I suppose I want to quickly, if I can do this and not go on too long, is speak to you just about two things very, very quickly. The place bit and the prayer Bit. Let's talk about the prayer bit first, because we've been reflecting upon the blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We've been reflecting upon the dynamic of personal renewal and social renewal, that dynamic of intimacy and action or worship and justice. We just have a desire that God would come in our city, that his kingdom would break in and it would start with us. And we sense that it would start with us. So this year we're, we're leading you all us all on a journey of becoming a house of prayer. It's as simple as that because we don't know where else to start. I don't actually know where else to start but on our knees. 
And we're literally going to open up a prayer room because that's what we feel God's led us to. There's this inextricable link between being this house of healing and this house of prayer where our hunger and thirsts are directed and there's an appetite, there needs to be an appetite worked up here if people are going to come and encounter God and are going to come and encounter a place of healing. It would make sense that this place was a place of the presence of God and he is the great healer. And so we just sense that we're to become a house of prayer this year. That's pretty much, it's pretty much it. We're drawn to that passage in Mark 11 where Jesus walks into the temple and turns the tables over because the, the money changers were selling doves at two to three times the amount they were selling them on the outside of the temple. They were exploiting people, exploiting the poor. Jesus turns the, in anger, in righteous anger, flips the tables and says, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and they started to look, it says they began looking for a way to kill him because they knew, because they feared him, because the whole crowd were amazed at his teaching. Something interesting in that language of house of prayer, something really interesting about those words of Jesus. And so this year, Redeemer 2019, we're gonna seek God in this season. That's where we're going, that's where we're going. We're gonna invite you all, we invite you all to come with us on a, in a season where we, we invite God to bring renewal and invite God to work up an appetite in us. And we're going to seek, as Psalm 105 says, seek the Lord in his strength. We're going to seek his presence continually. St. Augustine says, you have put salt on our mouths that we may thirst for you. It's a salty season, Redeemer. It's a salty season. Prayer and the presence of God sparks hunger for the things of God and the things of the kingdom. How are we going to do this? Four ways, very, very quickly. We've set up, we've began, we've carved out some space for these prayer and worship nights. Rosie just spoke about one. We had one on Wednesday night. We've got one next month too. Third Wednesday night of every month, two hours to seek God's presence together, to worship to come. It's not a place for the leaders just to get on the mic. This is a place for the church to come and to share and contribute and seek God together. It's just, that's all it is. There's no agenda other than that. To come and seek God's presence. And that little space there, we would love to see that sort of act as like a pop-up prayer room. I would love the artists in this community to be involved. I would invite the musicians and the artists to come and speak to me. I'd love us to write prayers literally all over those walls. I would love us to have an expectancy that we'll hear from, from God in this season, that God's going to help direct our paths. He's going to open doors because we've been going into that place and praying together. Second thing we're going to do is we're going to engage with the season of Lent. I was thinking about it this week. I was thinking about how we we're going to do a week of prayer and fasting at Easter. And then I thought, Christian calendars already thought about this. They've got 40 days before Easter where you're supposed to pray fast up to Easter. So let's not just do it for a week at Easter. Let's go on a season of prayer and fasting beginning next Wednesday, the 6th of March. For 40 days, I invite you to come and pray um, personally every day, fast from social media, fast from something so that you can direct, redirect your appetite, your hungers and your thirsts toward God, I would invite you to do that. That's something you can take up yourself individually. We might push out some resources to help you on that. Third way we're gonna do this in this season is, as I said, we're gonna open up a prayer room. Um, the room behind this pulpit, 
through that wall is a small room that used to be the minister's room when I first walked into it. There was a wardrobe of ministerial robes hanging and a big massive oak table and nice red carpet and now it's just an all fairy lighted and redeemerized and it's just a little bit of a mess, beautiful mess. But it's something about the room though that's really interesting and we pray in it every Sunday uh, from 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock. There are people in that room praying. We're going to make it a prayer room, which means we're going to open it up to the church, which means we're going to figure out a way for you to come down on a Tuesday morning at 4 a.m. If you've booked in online, you can book in slots to pray in the prayer room yourself or with someone else and come down into that space by yourself. Somehow we're going to figure this out. Um, You can come into the building, you can book in, you can pray, and we're going to have prayer stations set up there and it's going to be conducive to praying and it's going to just be a space in this building. It's a small space. We're going to start there. We're going to launch that Easter week, Palm Sunday. We'll tell you all about it, but that's what we're working up to. That week of Easter, we're going to launch that prayer room. You're going to be able to book into those slots ahead of time when we launch that, maybe a month before it. And you can go down and we can begin to pray as a community. So there's prayer going on there. And the fourth way we're going to do this very quickly is we're going to be reading a book in our tables Hopefully most of our tables will engage with this. I know that our other, some tables are reading different literature, but we're going to promote this book, Dirty Glory, by Pete Gregg. He is the founder of 24-7 Prayer. We're going to, we've registered our prayer room with 24-7 Prayer. 24-7 Prayer is a global prayer movement with 600 prayer rooms worldwide. This book is not boring. It's really good. It's full of loads of stories. It's really irreverent. It's not really that Christian in some ways. It's good. It's like, it is Christian, but it's like, do you know what I mean? It's not like holier than thou stuff. It's like really gritty, real stories. I'd love you to pick up a copy. We're selling them, I think, at the back for 10 pounds. You can get them on Amazon. That's the other way we're going to do this. Those four ways. Worship, Worship nights, Lent, fasting as a community, a week of prayer, and fasting in our prayer room at Easter, and then reading this book together. And hopefully, we will see where it goes. We will trust that God's working up an appetite in us. That we will be blessed because we hunger and thirst for justice. The last thing I'll mention about uh, this, just to whet, I suppose, your appetite a little bit, is that during that year, the end of last year, we were thinking about a lot of this stuff and some, some conversation actually started about this very place, about this building. We don't own this building, but it's owned by the former uh, church. There's a trust from the former church that own it. We have a great relationship with them. But they just came to us and were like, do you want to buy this? We were like, eh, yeah. So there's not, no more to report on that other than a conversation has begun. It's going slowly. No one's in a rush. But there's some kind of transition we sense happening. We don't know whether it means we're going to buy the building. We don't know whether it means we're going to join their board and have a little bit more, uh, I suppose, serve on the board to steward this building. But we really sense that this place, our tables are important, our communities are important, yes. But in this season, we sense that this building, this place, is what God wants us to carve out some space in our city to be a place of his presence. With the hope, I suppose, that one day, someday, very soon, that this place is open more than just two days a week, that in fact it's open all of the time and there's maybe a counselling room and there's maybe some students coming in, there's maybe a cafe and there's maybe a little bit of the kingdom of God happening here. 
So that's going to take a whole lot of money. A whole lot of money. Because the heating doesn't work half the time. It's working this morning. Thank the Lord. But we don't know in any other way to approach that other than to raise some money. Or other than to pray that God would raise some money. I've run out of time. I'm going to have to keep moving. That's the summary for us in 2019. Starting with prayer. And praying for personal renewal, for God's presence, praying for God to speak to us, praying that God will give us wisdom about this building, that will release finance, that will guide us so that this place can become a house of welcome and healing. It can become a house of presence and prayer. And it can then lead, hopefully, to us becoming a house of mission and justice. I'd love you to stand. I'd love to invite the band up. Thank you for your patience this morning. I've gone on uh, longer than I had hoped. I tried to get through an awful lot there, but I hope that that has in some ways let you in on where we're going as a community. We want to invite you in on that. We want to go on that journey together. We don't know where it's going to end. But um, as we approach the table this morning, as we begin to worship again, close out our time, I just want you to come with that prayer on your hearts, Lord. Would you work up an appetite in me and would you come and satisfy my longings, redirect my longings and hungers toward you, toward your presence and come and satisfy our souls in Christ and break our hearts for the world. And as you do that, I know that you will be filled, that there is grace at this table. So I want you to not wait when I leave this lectern. I want you just to start coming right away. This doesn't have to be reverent. This can just be, you just have to come and feed from the one who is the most abundant, the one who never runs out of any resources, the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And I want you to dream about what stories might come in this season, what situations might shift in this season, what freedom might be attained in this season as we set our faces to seek God's presence, seek him. What transformation might happen? Lord, we thank you for your presence. As we come to the table, I pray that you would infuse our imaginations with ideas, but that you would feed our souls with your spiritual goodness and nourishment, your love and your grace. And Lord, Holy Spirit, we pray, would you come and have your way in this community? We invite you, come and, come and move us and break our hearts that we may ache for the world to be made right. We love you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We love you, Holy Spirit. Thank you for being with us this morning.